An old Cherokee proverb relays a conversation between a young Cherokee boy and his grandfather. And the wise old Indian described the inner struggle that we all face. And he said to his grandson, it's like there are two wolves inside of you. And, and, and it's a terrible fight. And, and one of these wolves is evil. He is anger, envy, greed, arrogance, resentment, pride, ego. But the other wolf is good. He is joy, peace, love, hope, humility, kindness, truth, faith, and compassion. He said, these two wolves are at war within me. They're at war within you. They're at war within everyone. And after a minute, the grandson thought about that. And he looked up at his grandfather and said, Grandfather, which wolf will win? And the grandfather answered back, The one you feed. The one you feed. The Apostle Paul talked about something very similar in Galatians chapter 5. He talks about the desires of the sinful nature that is at war within us with the Spirit of God. He even talks about, it's like there are two men at war within me. And Paul tells us, don't gratify, don't feed the sinful desires of the flesh. Things like discord, jealousy, envy, drunkenness, sexual immorality, idolatry. Don't gratify them. Don't feed them, Paul says. Instead, Paul says, walk in the Spirit. Live by the Spirit. Bear the fruit of the Spirit, which is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. We've been looking at these and exploring ways that we can feed those, that we can fertilize those, if you will. The Spirit's work in our lives so that we can bear the fruit of Christ's likeness. And today we're going to look at the next aspect of that fruit, goodness. What does goodness look like in the life of the Christian? And this is a tricky one, because the message that our culture gives us is that you're good, I'm good, we're all good. It's that everybody is inherently good. I don't know if you heard the news, the, the, the tragic story of this young couple that, uh, that were just bound and determined to prove that everyone is essentially good, that there is no evil. They even said there's no evil in the world. There's no real hatred. It's just all misunderstanding. We can just understand each other better. You know, everybody's inherently good. And they, they took off on this, this trek around the world to prove that. And they were killed by ISIS militants on the roadside. I believe it was in Afghanistan trying to prove hey, we're all essentially good. That's the message of our culture. Our culture tells us that, that the key to, to going to heaven is just to be a good person. Just do good works. But as we heard in our New Testament reading today, Jesus said no one is good except God alone. No one's good. The Bible teaches us that we're all sinners. That we are born sinners. We are born as enemies of God, separated from God by our rebellious spirits and destined for eternal separation from God in hell. 
as Baptists, as, as part of the Protestant tradition, we reject the idea of a works-based salvation. There is no amount of good works I can do to make up for my sin. I can't do it. Those scales will never balance. I can never earn my way to heaven. I can never do enough to please God on my own. Paul said we all fall short of God's glory. Isaiah wrote that our acts of righteousness, the very best of our good deeds, compared to God's holiness, are like filthy rags. In fact, the way to salvation begins with our admission that we are not good. Before I can be saved, I have to confess I'm a sinner. That I deserve hell. That I have rejected God. I have to admit and confess to my sinfulness, turn from my sins and thrust myself upon the mercy of God. I am dependent not on my goodness, but on Jesus' goodness. In Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, Paul says, For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not from yourselves. It is a gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. But, that's true. But we can't stop at verse 9. Listen to what Paul goes on to say in verse 10. For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. What a great way to look at salvation. God has created us in Christ Jesus. When you are saved, you become a new creation. You are recreated in Christ Jesus. When I am saved, I become this new creation. I become God's handiwork. His work of craftsmanship. And the purpose for which He has recreated me and saved me is to do good works. God has prepared you to do good works. He's prepared me to do good works. The problem isn't with doing good works. The problem is making sure the good works are on the right side of salvation. They come after salvation, not before. They're a result of salvation, not in order to be saved. Do you understand? Are, are, are we tracking? Now, one problem many Christians have today is that we've kind of thrown the baby out with the bathwater. We have so emphasized... Salvation by grace through faith, verses 8 and 9 of Ephesians chapter 2, that we have rejected good works altogether. We've completely forgotten about verse 10. Last week I said that too often Christians are known for what we're against than what we're for. You might also say that we're better known for what we don't do. We don't drink, smoke, or chew, or go with girls who do. You know, it, we're, we're maybe more known for that than what we're known for what we do. We, we tend to make ourselves subtraction-oriented people instead of addition-oriented people. We focus on what God has saved us from, which, don't get me wrong, is important. Being a Christian is certainly, you know, it means that we have turned from sin. We have rejected the, the, the sinful desires of the, flesh, of the flesh. We're no longer gratifying those. So, yes, God does save us from our sins, but being saved is also about what God saves us 
for. It's as much what He calls us into as it is what He calls us out of. God adds a whole lot more to our lives than He takes away. Amen? Sticking with the fruit analogy, you know, we have to keep the weeds out of our lives. But the mark of being a healthy, growing, mature Christian isn't your lack of weeds. It's the presence of the fruit. You can have a weed-free garden and have no fruit, can't you? The point isn't to say, look at my garden, it has no weeds. It's to say, look at my garden, look at the produce that it's, it's given me. Look at the harvest. There were a lot of people in Jesus' day that had a subtraction-oriented kind of faith. We call them Pharisees. And they criticized Jesus for doing the things that they would not do. You know, like touch lepers, eat with sinners and tax collectors and prostitutes, talk to Samaritan women, heal people on the Sabbath day, things like that. But see, Jesus chose to be known not for what He didn't do, but to be known for what He did. Peter was preaching about Jesus when he said this in Acts chapter 10. He said, you know how God appointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and power and how he went around doing good and healing all who were under the power of the devil because God was with him. Like Jesus, our lives should be marked by the good things we do for the glory of God. We should be plus oriented people, not subtraction-oriented people. And so I want to share a few thoughts on how and why our lives should bear the fruit of goodness for the glory of God. I just want to share a few thoughts. And the first is that it's bad not to be good. That sounds a little, you know, duh, you know. <laughs> should go without saying. It's bad not to be good. But listen to what James says. In James 4, 17, he says, If anyone then knows the good they ought to do and doesn't do it, it is sin for them. If you know the right thing to do and you don't do it, it's sin. So there are two kind of broad categories of sin. We can put all sin under these two categories. One is the sin of commission. You commit sin. You do something wrong, something bad. But then there's the sin of omission, where you fail to do something good, something right. Both of those are sins. Now, the sin of commission is a little bit easier for, to get, uh, for us to get our minds around because when you do something bad, there's consequences. When you do something wrong, you feel bad about it. There's that, that conviction, that twinge of guilt. And so then we confess and we admit, I did this thing that's wrong, and we ask God to forgive us. But the sin of omission is a little more difficult. Because it's about the things that we don't do, not the things that we do. Maybe you're not as generous as you should be. Maybe you don't tithe. Maybe you aren't sharing the gospel with lost people in your life. Maybe you fail to help somebody in need. Or maybe you're not serving in the church and putting your gifts to use for God's glory. Because you haven't done something wrong, you may not feel any guilt about not doing those things. Until the preacher stands up in the pulpit and talks about it, right? 
And then you start to kind of squirm in your seat and feel bad about it. Well, yeah, the preacher's right. I really should be more generous. Or, yeah, the preacher's right. I need to, I need to be more open with the gospel with people. But until somebody draws our attention to it and challenges us to deepen in our commitments and to make that conscious choice to serve or not to serve, we don't really think about it. We don't feel bad about the sin of omission. Maybe you've been in a situation like I've been before where you were talking with somebody, you were near somebody, and, and, and you knew this person wasn't a Christian or didn't go to church. And you had that little prompting of the Holy Spirit. You know what I'm talking about? That, that little prompting inside that just says, you really should invite this person to church. You really ought to tell this person about your faith. Maybe even they're blatant. They come up, they say something about God, or they, they raise a question about the Bible, and you just have that little urge inside of you to say something but you don't. And the opportunity passes you by. You ever done that before? I've done that. And you feel bad. You feel that guilt. You know you failed to do the right thing. See, God hasn't just called us out of sin. He hasn't just called us to stop doing bad things. He's called us into good works. He's prepared them in advance for us. He has appointed for us opportunities and ways to do good works, to bear the fruit of goodness. And when we fail to do that, we sin. Second thought for us this morning is that doing good is the best way to overcome evil. It's the best way to overcome evil. Now, Paul wrote in Romans 12, 21, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Another, another way we might put this is the best defense is a good offense. Or in Tennessee's case yesterday, we had neither. But uh, you've got to have at least one. But the best defense is a good offense. In other words, don't just be reactive. Be proactive. Have a plan for something positive and then do it. Don't let the devil get the ball and run the field and score a point. Don't do it. You hang on to that ball. You work the plan that God has given you to work. You call and and, and run those plays and you move the ball down the field toward the kingdom of God. Overcome evil with good. Protesting has almost replaced baseball as our national pastime, hasn't it? We see on the news all the time where some group somewhere is protesting something. People get on... Twitter and they tweet their protests with hashtags. People scream at the sky when their candidate doesn't win the election. We've become a complaining country, a protesting people. But the best way to overcome evil isn't to protest it. It isn't to tweet about it. It isn't a hashtag. It isn't complaining to your buddy. We need to stop complaining and do something. Amen? Don't just complain about kids these days. (laughs) Kids these days. Get up and volunteer. Ben will take you down at the warehouse, right? Come and volunteer and work with the teenagers. Help with Mission McDuffie for a week. Sign up to be on the rotation of children's church workers. Hold a baby in the nursery. Coach a referee for upward basketball. 
Make a lasting impact in the life of a child or a teenager. Don't just complain about kids these days. Do something. Don't just complain about politics or how broke Washington is. Inform yourself on the issues. Pray for our leaders. Get out and vote. Write or call your representative. Maybe even run for office. Do something. You've heard the expression, idle hands are the devil's workshop, right? See, there's no greater enemy to our souls than boredom. We weren't meant to live meaningless lives just trying to find the next entertaining thing. If we stay busy doing good, then we give the devil no room to use boredom to get a foothold in our lives. There's no retirement from serving the Lord. We are all called till we take our last breath to do good. God has prepared good works for you to do. And when you're done doing all the good works He's got for you, guess what? He calls you home to glory. How many of y'all are done doing good works this morning? I didn't think so. Here's another thought for us. Doing good fulfills our purpose. Doing good fulfills our purpose. Remember, we were created. We were handcrafted by God to do good works. He has prepared them in advance just for us to do. Here at First Baptist, we like to use the acronym SHAPE. S-H-A-P-E to talk about how God has shaped each one of us for a purpose. He has placed each one of us in the church for a particular reason. And that acronym SHAPE stands for our spiritual gifts. Every Christian has spiritual gifts. Every single one in this room, we all have a heart passion. Something we're passionate about. Something that really tugs on our heartstrings. Something we feel deeply about. A cause. A group of people. Some issue that matters to us. We all have natural abilities. Either we were born with or we've developed them. We have skills. We all have unique personalities. Amen? Every single one of us, we learn differently, we react to things differently, we relate to people differently, we deal with stress differently. We all have unique personalities, and every one of us in this room has unique life experiences. Good things and bad things that have happened in our life, that have given us a unique perspective, that have given us the ability to connect with different kinds of people. God has shaped you for a reason. He has woven you together by His Spirit for a purpose. Have you discovered your shape? Have you discovered the place where God wants you to serve and to carry out His great commission? Paul wrote to the Corinthian church and explained how God has placed each of us in the church according to His plan and our unique gifts. He says, now to each one, the manifestation of the Spirit is given for the common good. And then Paul goes on to talk about how we all have these different gifts and different kinds of service and different ways of working, but they all come from the same Spirit. And they're all meant to accomplish the same common good. And when we discover where God has placed us to serve, and we do good works that flow out of how God has uniquely shaped us, we discover a deep sense of joy. Joy. You know, there's a joy that comes from just being a Christian, a joy of salvation. 
Everyone who's saved, we should all have the joy of salvation. But there's another joy that I'm afraid a lot of Christians have missed out on, and that's the joy of service. Jesus talks about this in Matthew 25. He tells this parable and these servants and they've, they've either been good investors of what the Master has given them and trusted them or they have not. And those that are good with what God has entrusted them, He says this, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful with a few things. I'll put you in charge of many things. Come and share your Master's Happiness. When we take the gifts and abilities and talents and all that God has given us and we put it to work and we do good works for God's glory, someday we'll stand before Jesus and He will say, Well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into your Master's happiness. In John chapter 15, Jesus talks about how He is the vine and we are the branches. And if we abide in Him and He abides in us, then the Spirit will flow through us and we will bear fruit. And then He says this, I have told you this so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. When we do the good works that God has prepared for us to do, we will not only make our Master happy, but His joy will be complete in us. You want to know real joy? Do good. Serve the Lord. There are a lot of people in our church who are doing just that. Men and women, young people, who are dedicated to fulfilling God's will for their lives by faithfully serving the Lord in and through His church. I think of Pam Partridge and her team of volunteers that help us with Operation Christmas Child. We had a great program this past Wednesday evening. Heard from Mark and Sherry Bumbleow from, from Texas, from outside Houston, Texas. And they shared with us how their little church of 30 people have a goal of packing, I think this year was 10,000 shoeboxes. The shipping cost alone will cost the church $100,000. It's a church of 30 people. And they step out in faith and they've grown to this. They started with 500. They, they did better than 500. They moved to 1,000. They did better than 1,000. They moved to 2,000. They did better than 2,000. Last year it was 8,000. They did better than 8,000. This year it's 10,000. They're stepping out in faith. They're attempting a God-sized task and the Lord is providing. And they're doing good works for the glory of God. Operation Christmas Child is a great way for us to do good works for the glory of God. To fulfill that purpose, I want to challenge each of us to pack at least two more shoeboxes this year than we think we can. And let the Lord provide for us. I think of the group of men who spend many Saturday mornings building wheelchair ramps for people throughout our area. These men are good with their hands. They know how to build things. And they use their skills for God's glory. I think of the creative people who plan, some of them months in advance, Alice Gary, for how they're going to decorate their cars for trunk or treat. And they come up with elaborate costumes and great things. And I'm thankful for those people who just show up that day and say, well, I don't know what I'm going to do, but here's, here's something. Because you come and you bring your car and you want to give candy and Christ to boys and girls as they come walking through. And share with them the love of Jesus Christ. And let them know that First Baptist Church cares about them and their families. I think of the women who cook and serve our bereavement meals following the death of a church member. And one of our meals, faithful teams that have done this since the beginning of this ministry, they did their last meal this past week because some of them just aren't able to do it anymore. 
And so they're, they're passing off their knowledge and their skills to other people. And some of the members of that team are going to are going to help form a new team. And we're looking for people. If you can cook a dish, a casserole, if you can come and spend a few hours and, and help to serve and clean up, there's a place for you to serve in this important ministry. I think of the dedication of our Sunday school teachers and our team kid leaders who study and prepare to teach the Word of God to adults and to children and to teenagers every week. I think of those who come on Sunday mornings to make coffee for us. I think of those who greet at the doors and in the parking lot every Sunday. Those who keep the nursery and work in children's church, making sure that every boy and girl knows that no matter who they are, they are loved. I think of all the talented people working in our music and worship ministry and up in the balcony every week to help enhance our worship, to help lead us to the throne of God through music, who help to teach our children and our young people on, on Sunday nights, not just how to sing, but how to worship and how to lead others in worship. I think about Mike Lloyd helping people not only build up their bodies physically, but encouraging them to train their souls in godliness. I think of all those men and women who volunteer to help feed us on Wednesday night. From bicycles to baskets to backpacks. From wonderfully stitched in July to drive through nativity in December. From reaching children through VBS to reaching adults, senior adults through Stretch and Flex and Young at Heart. There is a place of service for you. And I could go on. We do good and we fulfill our purpose, the shape that God has given us. Here's another thought. Doing good empowers our witness. Jesus says in Matthew 5, in the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. There's a popular saying that's been attributed to St. Francis of Assisi that says, preach the gospel, if necessary, use words. While I understand the intent of that saying, I think that saying has been misused by a lot of people to excuse themselves to never having to say a word. I mean, think about the logic of, of saying, my life is so good that it preaches the gospel all by itself. Can anybody in here honestly say that? No. Of course we need to use words. Sometimes we might dress it up with phrases like lifestyle evangelism. But in the end, none of our lifestyles are good enough by itself to be an evangelistic tool. If we don't use words to proclaim the gospel, we are sinning by omission. If you think about it this way, if you do good for others, you know, you're clothing the naked and you're feeding the hungry and you're, you're, you're visiting those who are sick and in prison, you're doing all of that. If you do all of that, you never say a word about Jesus. You know what people are going to assume from the good things you're doing? They're going to assume that you're a good person. And that's it. They're going to think, man, what a nice guy Ben Tarver is. We must tell them the source from where our goodness comes. Just doing good works without putting them into a gospel context, it just points the spotlight at you. But what Jesus said here in John 5, 16, is that our good works should point the spotlight to who? To our Father in heaven. We should do good works in such a way that people don't look at us. They look at Jesus. So that He gets the glory. It takes both saying and doing to be a good witness for Christ. Because if we just do good, all we're doing is elevating ourselves to a place we don't deserve. 
But if all we do is try to say our witness without backing it up with the fruit of the Spirit and with good works and with the Christ-like lifestyle, then we do the opposite. We take Jesus and we drag Him down to our level. It takes both speaking the truth of God's Word and living it out in front of people to be an effective, powerful witness. Last week I asked, when people think of Christians, is kindness what comes to their mind? Can you imagine if we were the kinds of Christians that when people learned we were moving into their neighborhood, they got excited? Oh my goodness. The Smiths are moving to our neighborhood. I understand they're Christians. They go to First Baptist Church. I'm so glad they're going to be living next door to me because Christians are good neighbors. They help you out in times of need. They watch after your stuff. They don't blow their grass clippings over onto your driveway. They make the neighborhood a better place to live. Or could you imagine if in your office people found out that a new, the new hire was a Christian? Or on a sports team that the newest player was a Christian? And what if people knew that and said, oh man, they're not going to gossip. They're not going to stab us in the back. They're Christians. We can count on them. They're going to be honest. They're going to work hard and seek the good of the team. They're going to be a joy to be around. You know, there have been a few times in the past, Ben, when I've taken youth on trips and we've gone skiing or we've gone to camp or we've gone wherever and, and we've been in a hotel, which is always a nightmare for a youth minister, by the way. If you ever think that when Ben takes youth to a hotel for a weekend, that's a vacation. No, uh-uh, please, it is not. He doesn't sleep a wink those nights, I'm telling you. He worries. It, it's a lot of responsibility. And there have been a few times on those trips, a few times... I wish I could say it was every time, but a few times on those trips, and some of you in this room are some of the guilty parties as to why it wasn't every time. But there were a few times where I would have a manager come up to me at the end of our weekend and say, I just want to let you know that your group was a great group. I didn't get any complaints from other pa patrons in the hotel. I, you know, they didn't wreck anything. You know, it's it, just thank you for your group being so wonderful. I've taken youth on trips. We've stopped at a restaurant. And after, after we're leaving, I've had a manager come to me and say, I just want to tell you, I've never seen a youth group clean up after themselves so well. Thank you. You guys were a joy to serve. And you can sort of see the shock on their face. Because I think usually they see a church bus pull up and they cringe. Oh, no. But what if every time a Christian bus pulled up at a restaurant or a hotel, what if those people working there and those managers said, oh my goodness, great, it's a church. We're going to have an easy job today. What if that's the way we lived? We should bolster our witness by our walk. We should practice what we preach through our good works. And the final thought for us today is we must encourage each other to do good. Hebrews 10.24 says, Let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds. One of the reasons that we gather together for Bible study and worship together as a, as a body of believers is so that we can be cheerleaders for goodness with each other. So that we can encourage one another and inspire one another and challenge each other to be creative and to be bold and to step outside of our comfort zones. It's so that we can point out in each other the gifts and the strengths and the unique shape that God has given us. Sometimes we don't see it ourselves, but other people can tell us and affirm in us the calling that God has put in our lives. We can do this in our families as well, moms and dads. 
to train up our children to do good things, to look for ways that they can be helpful at home or at school or with their friends. And through our programs here at First Baptist Church, we strive to provide teenagers and children opportunities to discover their shape and to serve. Just this past Wednesday, our team kid group went to Manna and they packed bags of groceries for people. Abby came home so excited that she got to have a hand in helping to feed hungry people. Moms and dads, look for ways that you can serve alongside your children. Go on a mission trip together. Do a, do a trunk or treat car together as a family. Let the kids help come up with an idea and decorate that trunk. Look for how God is shaping your child. Point out their gifts and abilities and encourage them to use it for the glory of God. You know, being spiritually fit and healthy and mature, it isn't just about how many Bible verses you know. It isn't just about how often you come to church. It's about how much these nine virtues are bearing fruit in your life. That's what it's about. Are you more like Jesus today than you were this time last year? And often, it's our family and our co-workers and our close friends and the members of our Sunday school class. Often, they're the ones that can best answer that question for us than we can ourselves. It's funny, but one of the best tests for whether God is doing something in our lives is whether it's noticed by those who are closest to us. They can see things in us that we can't. So ask them. Ask them, am I bearing the fruit of love more now than I used to? Do I seem more peaceful or joyful to you? Am I showing kindness more, patience? Am I more patient now or less? Or am I just as impatient as ever? What kind of good works are you doing for the glory of God? And I want to ask you this. Is Jesus the Lord of your life? Have you surrendered your life to Him? To live for Him rather than for yourself? To seek the things of God first and foremost? Because Jesus wants to be your Lord. He wants to give you new life. He wants to forgive you of your sins. Have you come to the place in your life where you have admitted, I am not good and I can never earn salvation or forgiveness or a place in heaven. So, Father, I am casting myself upon Your grace. Jesus, would You save me? If you've never done that, I invite you to do that this morning before you leave. Maybe this morning God is leading your family to join this local church. And if He is, if He's leading you to join here, you know what that means? That means He already has a place of service prepared for you. Now we just have to discover where it is. That means that God has shaped you for a particular reason right here at this church, that this can be a place where you can do good works to give glory to your Father in heaven. And we invite you to come and unite with us and find that place of service for the kingdom of God. Maybe this morning you've been living the sin of omission. Maybe you've been like Jonah. You've been running from what you know God has called you to do. Maybe it's even in full-time Christian ministry. And you've said, no, I can't, no, I'm not able, no, but you know that you're running from God. Today, I invite you to stop running and surrender to His call on your life. Or maybe that God has called you for a particular place of service in our church. And you've had your reasons, your excuses for not serving. I don't have time. I can't make that commitment. I'm not that great with kids. I don't have that much rhythm. That you could ring a bell. Stop running. Surrender to the Lord today. Would you pray with me? Father, we love you.
We thank You for Your grace and Your mercy. We thank You that You treat us not as we deserve. We thank You that You reach down to us in the depths of our sin and You want to rescue us and set our feet on solid ground. We thank You that You have shaped every one of us who claim the name of Christ. You have shaped us for a purpose. Help us to see that and to surrender to that and to do good for Your glory. In the name of Christ we pray.